this uh, whole topic of ethics is a little bit fraught in the trajectory of my uh, academic work because um, uh, in the period that I've been active writing in science and technology studies, the field of STS, um, a field of ethics of science has arisen. It's not actually one field even. You can practically take any area of the sciences today and stick an ethics onto it, and it's a field of its own. So there's, of course, bioethics, the big granddaddy, which has a longer history than some of the other areas, and I'll talk more about that. Um, but, you know, there's neuroethics and infoethics and, you know, pretty much anything, cognoethics. And anyway, you can stick a nanoethics. Oh, yes, nanoethics, which is very, very small ethics. But, you know, so there's, there's ethical sensibility spreading out all over. And um, STS scholars have always looked in a slightly bemused way at this idea that you can... Uh, reduced to principle things that seem so very messy and so very complex in public life uh, because the sort of essence of the field of STS uh, is often to show where the complications are, where the nodes of friction are and where people find it difficult to make decisions and to make judgments. Um, and it's a kind of warning field in that sense that it says do not simplify at your peril. So then for someone like me to come out of that kind of almost ethical you know, commitment to show complexity, to write a book called The Ethics of Invention, of course, is itself a bit of a paradox. And I want to say something about how I think of the idea of ethics in our complicated life, because of course, I do think that values are important. I do think that we should be thinking about values. And I do think also that invention, technological invention, the moment at which we design a set of new things in the world, that those moments are moments that ought to be ones of deep reflection about the kinds of values we stand for as societies. But then one should come to that set of reflections in an informed way with some sensibility for the history, for the institutional context and the cultural contexts out of which that reflection should occur. So then, you know, like a good director, Marcus, of course, tried to keep me on track with things like titles. And like any good self-respecting academic lecturer, I, of course, didn't know what I wanted to say still till much later than I produced a title, but this seemed encompassing enough to take on board the sorts of issues that I think we should be thinking about. So, you know, we are reconfiguring the future at some, you know, some people say a speeded up uh, timescale, but whether or not there are many aspects of our futures that are passing through nodes that you might refer to as science and technology, and what is happening at those nodes is worth our thinking about. So this is a little party trick. You can do it to wow your friends, take an issue, any issue, look at the headlines of the day, pull out the way that it's being discussed. But with science and technology, I think there's a purpose to doing that kind of exercise. Just FYI, and to give credit where credit is due, these are headlines picked out of the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Washington Post, 
um, the papers that I cycle through on a regular basis, but they all come from roughly the last couple of days. I mean, so, you know, you can do this ragbag of things and, and there's always something, but you can also organize them depending on what your field of social science or humanistic interest is. You can uh, follow certain things. So you can look for actors and entrepreneurs, if that's your interest. And lo and behold, of course, Elon Musk and, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg show up, uh, and they're even fighting each other, which is certainly of interest to anybody who's interested in political struggles. Um, there are um, cross-national things that are happening, showing the reach of science and technology, that it's not just national phenomena, but they're cutting across boundaries, so some of you may have seen that London's mayor declared that Uber is no longer welcome in London, and as of today, Theresa May, the prime minister, has declared that this was overreaction, so there's a kind of British internal politics playing around the international politics of what is going to happen to the rideshare industry across borders, um, and then a very recent headline that is seems to be made for the US White House at present, namely that IBM has more employees in India uh, than it does in America. But how you interpret that is obviously up for grabs in a sense. Do you take that as outsourcing jobs in a way that the present administration violently opposes? Or do you take that as a sign, a, an indicator of how little we've been investing in the US in the education of our own citizens such that many other countries are prepared to outperform American citizens on the technological front. So the takeaway lessons from these headlines depend in a sense of which value system you're coming out of. And then, you know, the old issues of race, class, gender, the the subject matter of sociology and the subject matter of politics have not disappeared. So Democrats are pushing a 40 billion plan to bring the best internet access to rural America. I mean, that is about class. And then push for gender equality, there's gender. Facebook's underclass, even within the organization, there's an overclass and an, shall we say, an uberclass and an underclass. I mean, so, you know, there are these kinds of phenomena going on around the tech industry showing that for all the sort of innovation, invention, hype that surrounds tech, there are these large structural issues that are not going away and that resurface in new guises. And again, that makes us, you know, think about the value systems that, that are being projected onto us through these technological devices and inventions. And then Last but not least, I mean, just as if answering a prayer on the eve of a lecture, uh, there's the story of this former Google engineer who's been going the rounds himself as, a, as a, an actor in the system, and he is developing an AI god. Um, you know, why be unambitious when you have a sky-opening technology like artificial intelligence at your command? But what is being asked of this AI god, once AI being artificial intelligence for anyone who's been living in a cave, um, but what are the questions that you pose to this AI god? And that, I think, is also indicative as a kind of opening of the stage to the sorts of things we might consider. What will humans do once artificial intelligence outperforms us in most tasks? So note the predictive quality of that. I mean, it's once, not if. 
so this is, there is an inevitability story here that often accompanies technological advancements, that it's always cast as technology it's, is on its way and it's going to determine outcomes. The short way of labeling this is technological determinism. But if you trace out the corollaries of technological determinism, what will humans do once artificial intelligence outperforms us in most tasks? You've already constrained the domain of ethics because you're saying, this is coming, folks. We are, the computers are going to rule the world, and you may as well consider what you in your constrained little humanistic lives will do once these machines are out there outperforming you in most tasks, well, in which tasks not. There have been some sobering studies of people like me who lecture and how the lecture itself is becoming a passé cultural form and therefore the robot will be able to outperform us. Probably it will be able to study all of the words I've written and be able to produce a sample text that I would have uttered anyway. It's a kind of immortality if one wishes the computer to take over, but it's also kind of being rendered uninteresting in the moment, right? Whereas I think I'm being clever throwing jokes out at you, but you know, the, the computer could do it maybe even better than me. How will society be affected by the ability to create super smart athletic designer babies that only the rich can afford? Again, think of the assumptions that are built into that. So first of all, that the technology will remain expensive and only the rich can afford it. All of the history of technology suggests that things that cost a great deal of money at the outset soon end up quite soon, often, end up not costing very much money. So I was looking the other day for purposes of something else I was writing at the price of penicillin. Um, within a few short years, from approximately 42 to 45, 1942 to 1945, the cost fell for something like $100,000 for like 20 units of penicillin to almost nothing, to like 20 cents per unit. So the assumption that only the rich will be able to afford this technology doesn't even hold true for getting your genome sequenced, right? I mean, it used to be hundreds of thousands of dollars, and now it's like the 99-cent genome is being marketed. I mean, very soon you'll be able to, uh, you know, uh, go into your favorite coffee shop and get your genome read out for the price of a cup of coffee, right? But the assumption is that we should be thinking about our ethical thoughts in a world in which certain things about cost are invariant. Super smart, well, what is super smart? I mean, you know, uh, I always, I mean, you know, I've heard uh, Marcus say twice how super happy he is to have me here, and they've made me wonder what the super is in relation to. Um, <laughs> but, you know, many studies of today's students um, done by dyspeptic seniors like me suggest that they're smart on some axes and not so much on others, okay? So, I mean, you know, there's trade-offs and what you're measuring the super smartness about. Athletic, does everybody want them to be athletic? And why are designer babies only designer babies because of some technology as opposed to all the other ways. I mean, so, you know, every elementary ethics class teaches you that parents try to turn their children into designer children by giving them all kinds of benefits. And why is giving somebody extra, you know, violin lessons or extra math lessons any less design than designing their genome? So 
you know, all these assumptions are floating around in something as transcendental as the idea that we're going to create a god and a computer, right? I mean, so we're asking very limited, very human questions of this god. And should a driverless car kill five pedestrians or swerve to the side to kill the owner? I mean, you know, anybody who thinks the world comes in trolley problems really ought to go see a shrink. I mean, you know, this, you know, there is no world I know in which the simplicity of five to one presents itself, and it's extraordinary that our trolley problem inculcated philosophers have spent tons of really serious intellectual energy in complicating those scenarios. I mean, so what if the one person was going to be the mother of Beethoven, you know, would that alter our, our assessment of the five to one? And in the end, do we come back to how much of a value do we put on human life, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's in the simplification that the weirdness resides in the first place, right? I mean, not in the further complexification that people then subsequently do. We see this with neoclassical economics all the time. It starts out with some foundational assumptions about the way people are. And then we need to invent whole worlds of further economic analysis to say things like, oh no, people operate inside of families, so maybe you should look at preference not at the unit level of the individual, but at the level of the family or the city or the whatever. But Maybe if you were an anthropologist, you never made that simplification in the first place. So for you, that would not be a question. So what interests me about the way in which this future making is being cast is all the baggage that comes with it. So a certain set of disciplinary baggages that tell you that the trolley problem way of thinking is the disciplined way to think of the world such that when you advance to the seat of that AI godhead, you will pose your questions to the god in the terms of a trolley problem. And, you know, I think that this is, first of all, a kind of absurd assumption about the world, and second of all, is not the right place from which to think ethically about futures. But, you know, this is I think it's important to lay out, you know, what the terrain of everyday discourse is in order to say, well, where do we want to go from there, which is really more of what I want to talk about for the rest of the time. So I think we have to pay more attention to imaginations if we're going to talk about futures. Who gets to imagine? I've already suggested that in that little close reading I did of the AI God and the questions we pose to it are some reasons for why we need to think more about the imagination. Because wherever we turn in modernity, there are things that constrain our imagination and our capacity to act. You could almost say as a definition of modernity that it is a state of the world in which uh, the capacity for human imagination to be exercised is curtailed and constrained by a set of phenomena such as standardization, such as industrialization, such as mechanization, and the whole set of things that we think about under the heading of modernity. 
Um, so if we want to think about collective imaginations, and that was a book title from an edited volume where this is spelled out in more detail, uh, you might want to think, well, where are these imaginaries and who gets to imagine the world? That, that this might be a precondition for thinking, how do we think ethically about these futures? So in the work that my group and I have been Doing, we've been playing around with the idea of imaginaries and how to define them. And this was an initial definition and a second definition. But the second definition simply spells out some of the things that were not explicit in the first. I mean, so imaginaries, collective imaginations, do not have to be located inside of nation states. They can be in any structured place. So we were having a little bit of joking around at the beginning about U of T time. Um, so, you know, that is a certain, I mean, even a phrase like that suggests that U of T has a self-imagination that actually directs the clock in a different way from how the clock directs us. So it's a kind of counter-imagination to the imagination of the clock. The clock, as you know, was a very powerful standardizer of modernity. So when U of T declares that three o'clock shall really be 310, it's a small blow against modernity in the effort to assert a U of T-ness that is part of the imaginary of who we are. Harvard also has Harvard time, but when I was little and at Harvard, Harvard time was one thing inside of Harvard Yard and a different thing outside. So it was seven after the hour if you held classes inside Harvard Yard and 10 past the hour if it was outside the yard. So there was a collective imagination of what Harvard Yard was, was a, as a time-space coordinate that was different from the world outside of Harvard Yard. So, you know, mundane examples give you some sense of what it means to talk about collective imaginaries. And then there are, of course, practices that ground these things. So you, if, it's, if lectures begin at 10 past the hour, you don't begin on the hour and you don't begin at 15 past the hour. Whereas if you were in Germany and saw the words, the letters CT, you would begin at 15 after the hour because it was understood that that's what it meant. Okay, so in order to complicate our ethical sensibilities, we have to look at these imaginations of the future and ask who is making these imaginations, who's projecting them, and therefore whose worlds are we actually living and acting in? What are the restrictions on the things that we can do and can't do? And I want to begin at planetary scale, but then move down to cellular scale in the course of the talk. So when I first started lecturing about this image, people didn't kind of know what it was. This was in the days when we didn't, when we had Rolodexes of slides, and when I relied on anybody else to put the slides in, half the time they put it in upside down, uh, because, I mean, well, upside down, what is upside down? It's a convention, but when we look at the globe, we tend to look at it axially like this and not the other way around. But it was an indicator to me that the image was not familiar to people. Now, of course, it's incredibly familiar. You can download it from the NASA website because it doesn't have a patent, I mean, it doesn't have a copyright restriction on it, uh, even though the astronauts have been claiming that it should be theirs and not NASA's because they individually took the picture. But anyway, this has not been recognized as a claim um, in the intellectual property world. But lots of myth-making has happened around this image. Um, 
One of the arch myth makers was my former colleague, Carl Sagan, uh, who was one of the first people to popularize a science uh, TV show you know, at a mega popular scale. Um, and one of the things he said in, in a book of his was that this was a transformative moment when people saw this image. And it was a transformative moment because although he didn't use end of politics to write a book, uh, it was because it signaled the end of politics. From this vantage point, the van vantage point of space, our obsession with nationalism is nowhere in evidence. And the Apollo pictures of the whole Earth conveyed to multitudes something well known to astronomers on the scale of worlds humans are inconsequential. So there's a set of things being asserted there as well. Partly it's a kind of lag in public understanding that astronomers have known a truth about the world which the public only catches up to later that you need a translational exercise like an image to make this possible. I mean, so there's a, a whole worldview, a whole almost sociology of knowledge implicit in that very quotation. But in any case, um, the this sort of moment of transformation before which people thought about the world in a certain way, after which they thought about in a certain other way, runs through the discourse on environmentalism. It runs through it despite the fact that any credible research would have shown that the uptake of that image was radically different and still remains radically different across countries. So in the year 2000, I actually did a little bit of a study of this, looking at the Indian media uptake of the global environmental image as opposed to the American media uptake, and there was essentially none in the Indian media. And it was an interesting year because, of course, it was the birth of the millennium, and the image of the Earth was already being used to signal a sort of millennial moment. But when I looked at pictures you know, coming from about that period, uh, December 31st to January 1st, in Indian newspapers and so forth. The images that appeared were of the globe, you know, with the latitude-longitude lines on the face, and not of the planet. So the, the um, Sagan point that on the scale of worlds, humans are inconsequential, seemed itself to be a claim about American v viewings of the world and not of the world itself. But in any case, people have taken that as a starting point for thinking about sustainability, and sustainability in turn has been translated today into the energy transition, and everybody's wanting the energy transition. So you might ask if the way that science and humanity work is by science revealing these truths and then human interactions and implementation following along, you would expect to see a lot of convergence in the idea of the energy transition. But if you look at just some arbitrarily simple and superficial indicators, you find that in three countries as closely similar as the US, Britain, and Germany, um, three technological pathways are already looking somewhat different and to some degree radically different. So nuclear, coal, and renewables. In Germany, nuclear is being phased out. In the US, people are desperately trying to reintroduce it after a de facto moratorium. And in Britain, there's, no, there's been no hint in either labor or conservative public policy that there's any desire to rule out nuclear at all, and Britain is trying desperately to build more nuclear capacity right now. 
Coal, on the other hand, it's been argued fairly convincingly that coal mining was the backbone of the labor movement, certainly the confrontation between Maggie Thatcher and um, Scargill when he was head of the miners' union is treated as uh, an inflection point in British politics. But just this summer, Britain went for an entire day with no power being generated from coal-fired power plants. So in this sort of coal-made nation, Timothy Mitchell has written about this in his book, Carbon Democracy, coal is essentially gone. Whereas Germany, which has the highest amount of renewables and a total phase out of nuclear, is now burning more coal than some of the other Western countries. So even in these three pathways, you see that the pathway to the energy transition is being imagined in different ways with different mixes of energy, different ideas of where the threats are, and of course attached to that a different set of sensibilities about climate change, which was supposed to be this unifying idea that was one of the products of our seeing the planet whole and seeing its vulnerability and so forth. And one can spell out the same point about difference in a variety of different ways. So here are side-by-side -side energy production scenarios, a nuclear power plant in the north of Wales and cow dung patties in central India taken in the same year. Um, these are just my own pictures but a very famous cartoon that articulated the same point about the single carbon market, that carbon is not carbon is not carbon, and hence the politics of it and the ethics of it look different. I mean, so the very decision to create a single market and allow for exchange of carbon across borders has beneath it an ethical presumption that all carbon is the same as all other carbon, regardless of the nature of the point of origin, the kinds of activities that led to it, and so forth. And this very famous cartoon realizes that in some sense in visual and ironic form, that the carbon belching uh, large vehicle driven by what could only be a caricatured American is set equivalent to the fuel wood needs of a much thinner and by implication poorer uh, person in the developing world. All right, so I said I'd start with the planetary and then move into the molecular, and I want to shift attention now to the biological age and look at some of the ways in which imaginaries for what to do with these new biological techniques have been every bit as divergent and continue to be every bit as divergent as the ones about the planet and sustainability and environmental phenomena. So I want to begin by talking about what's happening to the family in a period of, one could say, molecularizing the family. So um, we can look at different inputs to the family. We can look at the gametes and the embryos. We can look at cloning. We can look at stem cells and research on them. We can look at new ways of forming embryos. And we find that there are technical points at which countries and societies differ in their willingness to accept change. So uh, to what extent is it right to extract or donate uh, gametes, for instance, uh, should women be allowed to charge money for donating their 
eggs for research purposes in many countries and in many parts of America, the answer has been, no, this should not be a commercialized activity, even though in the reproductive arena, it is a commercial activity. So a company that is trying to run an egg bank for infertile couples can advertise at Harvard for $50,000 to get a likely donor who will be super smart and athletic and a good mother for a designer baby. But if that same woman were to go and donate her eggs for research, she would get paid nothing. So, I mean, you know, these are sort of, uh, dis you know, points of contention even within singular cultures, if they're singular in some ways. Um, so at each of these sort of things, moments where we've learned to do something new, like freeze eggs or derive stem cells from embryos or whatever, there are moments of contention that point to something else at work, something other than a technologically deterministic vision that we get these technologies and immediately we will be rushing to produce these designer babies or whatever. So one can think of it in terms of um, narratives, and I'll show you the pictorial narrative before going on to words. I mean, so if you look at stem cells, you will find that they're illustrated in various ways. There's the, uh, the real illustration of what you actually see through a microscope. Um, there's the textbook illustration that's often presented in cartoon form. And then there's the political representation of how people want you to think about it because they want a certain set of political results. And these have been fairly powerful, different ways of thinking about reproductive biology in the era of, the, of genetics and now genomics. Um, and if you look at um, the regulation of in vitro fertilization, you find that um, again, to take my three comparison countries, you have very different kinds of outcomes. And I don't mean to go over every cell in this table, which would keep us here far too long, but even in terms of the regulatory structure that's in place around something that's fairly widespread now in vitro fertilization, we find very different uh, ways of regulating. So in the US, it's decentralized. It's largely up to the fertility clinics regulated at state level if they're regulated at all to decide what the rules are. And in Britain, on the other hand, there is a centralized body, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority that sets nationwide guidelines. And in Germany, it's yet more uh, centralized because it happens under law. So parliament is the body through which things have been enacted and not one of these quangos, the quasi autonomous, non-governmental organizations that Britain prefers. And it ends up having serious implications for the way the technology is delivered. So in the US, for instance, um, other than guidelines in hospitals and clinics, there's no limit to the number of embryos that can be implanted. And we have these occasional horror scenarios, you know, the octomom where a single doctor chose to implant eight embryos and she actually produced them in live birth. But 
in Britain, there's a, a changing and gradually lowering standard that has been set by the HFEA, which regulates both the ages at which the implant can be made and the number. And in Germany, there is a requirement that you can't even produce more embryos than you're going to implant in a single cycle, and a maximum number is stipulated at three. But this has untold implications for the research enterprise because in the US, you get an unlimited number of frozen embryos left over from these proceedings because there's no limit, whereas in Germany, you're not even allowed to produce the ones that would produce the limitless number of embryos. Um, so, you know, the entire sort of technical infrastructure for reimagining futures is reconfigured by prior understandings about what constitutes a family and how do you read a stem cell, for instance, into your prior understandings of what science is and what a family is and so forth. Um, these things are being further altered now that we have shifted from the age of genetics, you know, loosely speaking, the age of DNA and trying to read everything in the DNA to reading things at a genomic level, so the total informational content that makes up a human being. It was very political, the transition from the genetic to the genomic age, as these diagrams or these pictures illustrate. So when the first draft of the human genome was um, unveiled to the public, there was a joint appearance by Bill Clinton and beamed in Tony Blair you know, showing that this was national politics. The production of the genome was a moment of national and international politics. And Science Magazine had that cover picture, the human genome, um, but you could read it in a variety of different ways. I mean, it, if it resembles anything as a cultural artifact, it resembles a movie poster. Uh, the sort of idealized images with the blurring. I mean, that is, you could read this in a, in a media studies uh, way to uh, show the interpenetration between the scientific celebratory moment and a kind of celebratory culture out of which that scientific celebratory moment arose. But you also see who counts in a way as archetypal citizens of the American state. I mean, so diversity represented in very classical American phenotypic diversity forms. And you see, if you want to take it that far, something of the underpinnings that make people afraid of the design of babies because the images are extremely idealized. I mean, so this is, if you want it to be a prototype of an East Asian or an African American, this is the way you would represent, I mean, I don't know what, what computer produced these idealized images, but you know, there's, uh, um, there's a sense in which the, what do you want the human to be is almost presupposed in the image making around the human genome. And of course, you see the suggestion of the DNA structure also in the way in which these faces are laid out. So the genotype and the phenotype merge together along with the, the image making. So against the background of that, it's not surprising that the stem cells have had two different kinds of narratives attached to them. And you might borrowing from Clifford Goetz, called the one of them thin and the other of them thick. So on the thin description side, science dominates. It's only the cells. The cells are just matter. 
It's pre-conscious. You don't have to worry about them. They have limited futures. So this is a matter that's extremely significant for ethics. If the stem cells only have a limited horizon, then you don't need to think ethically about their futures in the same way that you might have to think about them if they were proto-human beings. And therefore, since they're mere matter, and since in our societies we've already said that science is the institution that cont controls the material and how we understand it and what we do with it, you can leave the stem cell research stuff mainly to the scientists figure out what is right or wrong and how to tackle them. On the thick description side, you have a completely different understanding. You see the cells as precursors to human life and tied to human consciousness, having unlimited futures, therefore, because they can evolve into beings that will be sentient and live out their lives, a Kantian understanding of the future of the stem cell, and therefore they have to be politically governed. Now, in the US, people are very used to making a binary distinction between pro-science and anti-science, between religious and not religious, but it's worth noting that the thick description is what prevails in Germany, which is a scientific, modern, forward-looking culture that has not had the same divisions in politics that we have had in the United States. So this is not a matter of pre-modern, primitive, or whatever. It really is a matter of where you go for your philosophical sources and where you go to unpack the world in philosophical terms to understand the relationship between the moving frontiers and the choices that are being presented. So in terms of who is going to govern all this, of course, in many ways, the politics of the US is very transparent. In other ways, it's completely impossible to understand. So around these topics, it's become presidential politics. So who declares bioethics? Who in the US has the capacity to declare what life is for the purpose of thinking about ethical futures? The Supreme Court, at least until now, who knows with the next decision, has shied away from tackling that question. So you look at decision after decision after decision of the US Supreme Court, came close in Roe v. Wade, but even then it didn't. It didn't really address when life begins. Again, contrast Germany, where uh, the Supreme Court has, the Constitutional Court has had no trouble saying that life begins at the moment, human life begins at the moment when there is fertilization between the sperm and the egg, specifically when the nucleus of the sperm and the nucleus of the egg come together and fuse to form a single informational entity. That is where life begins. Our court system has chosen not to do that. On the other hand, we have presidents blithely declaring norms that they represent as universal, at least for the country, and possibly for the world. So, you know, the um, I can also, well, we have to explore the promise. I mean, Bush's most famous quotation there, this is George W. Bush, was there should be no state support for science which destroys life in order to save life. But for the close readers in the group, what he's doing there is making unconstitutional utterance because he is unilaterally declaring that the thing, the, the um, blastocyst or the even earlier stage of embryonic development from which the stem cell is extracted is a form of life and therefore belongs on the thick description side of what I said before and therefore it is a destruction of life to extract that stem cell. Um, 
Whereas for President Obama, he clicked in at a different moment. We will support research um, on, um, um, on cloning in particular, uh, which is both scientifically worthy and responsibly conducted. So in connection with this question of who governs, he's drawing a distinction between scientific worthiness and responsible conduct, but then he's taking it into the power of the presidency. We will ensure that our government never opens the door to the use of cloning for human reproduction. So he's imagining a universal norm, and he's saying who is responsible for enacting that individual that universal norm. I mean, this is really a quite powerful statement in political theory about whose job it is to be the sovereign in relation to life and its definition and its presidential politics. So now we have overlaid on that yet a more precise, or at least an imagined more precise technology for which a new set of even grander uh, claims are being made. So. Uh, MIT, not known for being the major source of cultural hype in the country, but this is its in-house journal. We can now engineer the human race. I mean, you know, there are a few steps in between, but and some people still persist in thinking there's not even only just one human race even, and we're also MITs producing computers which are pretending to be part of the human race. So, I mean, you know, what exactly are we engineering? But in any case, there's a set of being cl claims being made about the fundamental nature of CRISPR from which we already, you know, blow up our ambitions to engineer the human race. Well, if somebody is really engineering the human race and they're doing it just two subway stops away from me, um, I think that that's a question one can legitimately ask. Um, you know, who is doing the governing? And maybe it's not the same, maybe it's not presidential politics all the way down, but you know, something more complicated. And I think that in order to do this ethical futures stuff in a serious way, one has to ask about you know, who is governing at the moments when we're changing the ontological configuration of the world, bringing new things into being, changing our understanding of old things, uh, moving things from one category to another. I mean, these are all sort of moments and one can look at it, one can parse out that problem of ontological politics into sub-questions of different sorts. So the question, what sorts of entities do we want to bring in the, into the world in the first place? So when President Obama says we will never clone for reproductive purposes, that is a stand against a particular ontology. We will not clone a biological human being and reproduce people in that way. But one could ask this across the entire range of technologies and see that many of the disputes in today's world are about whether we should have particular kinds of things circulating in our midst or not. Um, then, of course, decision tree-wise, we can ask, well, who is supposed to be making these decisions? If you take one of those technologically determinist ways of thinking, then you end up saying it's a matter of scientific self-governance, that since the technology is going to happen in these ways anyway, it should be the scientists who are making these decisions. On the other hand, you could approach it from the political side and say nothing so 
hubristic as engineering the human race or to be left to those MIT engineers. I mean, you know, some other people might want to say something, not least the ones that are going to be engineered into the future, in the, I mean, what about the beings that are coming into being as well? And then if you're a lawyer, of course, you think of controversy and you know that people don't agree, so uh, what forums are there? So I think one can sort of pass out the problems a little bit more, and I'll go through this a little bit quickly. You can see that around ontological politics, there, there are questions of identity. What is the nature of the thing anyway? And there are various examples that have already occurred in the world that call our attention to just places where human identity is being thought through in a variety of different ways. And I'd be happy to talk about any of these examples in more detail, but they're interesting to look at, the Icelandic health sector database, where there was the idea that you are born with a duty to be in a database. And if you don't want to be, then you have to opt out. And this was ruled unconstitutional for different reasons. The arrest warrant for DNA fingerprinting, which gets around the statute of limitations by saying that identity lodges in that fingerprint, and we don't need to know what physical person that corresponds to. We can just go after the fingerprint. But note that this is, in a way, in tension with the Google Spain case, which says no permanent memorializing you know, without some justification for it. And the Healer settlement, the Henrietta Lacks settlement, was about a particular case in which a particular woman had been scientifically memorialized without her consent. The consent itself would have been anachronistic. There was no regime in place, but we actually read today's regime backward into that case to produce a kind of legal result, which is not binding on anything else. The National Institutes of Health in that case acted like a common law court restricting a decision to the facts and said this has no implications for anything else down the line. Well, they can say it has no implications to their blue in the face. If I want to make it into a precedent, I will be able to make it into a precedent sooner or later. And the thing is there as a decision that circulates in the world. There are property problems. Um, I mean, so what I'm doing is going through things that need to be governed, right? And the different conceptual structures that are already there. So under the heading of property problems, the question of who owns the human biologicals, it's interesting that until very recently, the controlling case here was a 1990 decision of the California Supreme Court and not a national decision. And now there's a Supreme Court decision on breast cancer genes or on human genes, but that's different from the whole category of biologicals that was covered in the Moore case. The nature of the natural, the best example here actually is the distinction between the Canadian case involving the Oncomouse and the American case involving the patenting of living organisms, where the Canadian Supreme Court drew a distinction. I mean, of course, it's muddier than uh, it looked in that case, but, but the Canadian Supreme Court used language and did a kind of analysis that simply had no counterpart in the US um, decision-making, judicial decision-making on patentable subject matter. So this question of higher life forms, I mean, in a way, the court was doing ontological surgery at that moment by declaring there was such a thing as a higher life form, which most biologists think is bad language because it's that you shouldn't think of life as being organized in that way. But never mind, it's there in the law. 
And then the status of the human embryo in relation to other forms of life has been thought differently, as I was saying with the thick and thin descriptions before. And all of these things then raise responsibility problems and the question of responsibility today is being played out in a geopolitical struggle between where we think market style solutions ought to govern and you know broadly speaking the discourse on neoliberalism um, in which case there's more of a responsibility on each of us to do the governance of ourselves uh, and a greater reliance on the private sector to set the rules within which people will operate. Um, and in the sort of multiplication of health monitoring instruments, you can see some of this devolution of authority to be responsible for one's own health. The call that Ezekiel Emmanuel, when he was an advisor to President Obama, made saying that Everybody has an obligation to serve as a clinical trial subject because we're all benefiting from medicine, just the way we all benefit from defense, and therefore just as everybody has an obligation to put her or his body on the line for the national defense, so everybody should have an obligation to put her or his body on the line for clinical trials. Um, you know, each of these presumptions could merit its own philosophy, lecture, book, or whatever. My point is more that these debates are going on. They're not hypothetical debates. But what is not being done is a search for contradictions, coherence, incoherence across these different debates, even within the same country. So how can we possibly even reach the domain of responsibility? And then you know, there are contested sites and the emergence of data as a governable domain, but so far with essentially no controls on it is interesting to um, think about in that connection. So in my own governance work, I've been thinking about three different modes of living with diversity. I hope I've persuaded you that there isn't unanimity around the world, even among quite similar cultures, about the right way to govern, that these disagreements stem from foundationally different ways of thinking about what the is and the ought are. What is the world? What is it constituted of? And what ought we to be doing about that world? Um, so one can think about what ways of governing that diversity already exist. And so one of them is coexistence. Uh, we simply say, well, there are these multiple ways, and uh, we must live and let live, and you know, we don't care what those people are doing across the border there. We just have to make sure that whatever it is they're doing doesn't come into our borders, and therefore we put big safeguards around. Maybe even we build a wall. Um, and of course, the ethics of conflict then is about who pays for that wall, right? Um, but in any case, I mean, there's, a, there's an ethics of conflict management. You can think about just wars and unjust wars theory, but you know, this is around science and technology. It has a different set of valences. So coexistence is one mode. A slightly more charitable mode is cosmopolitanism, where we actually try to understand, this is, these are my definitions, by the way, not out there in the world. I mean, coexistence is kind of understood that way widely, but 
cosmopolitanism is a much debated term. I want it to mean something like this, that I have an obligation not just to let you exist, but also to understand what is making you tick and then to develop ways of accommodating. I mean, so, you know, these days when somebody invites you, they always say, any dietary preferences? And whatever their own preferences are, you have a right to expect that if you're a vegetarian or a vegan or have a nut allergy, your host is not purposefully going to give you the things that you don't want. Um, regardless of what the host's own sensibilities are in this regard. So that's a kind of ethics of respect and respectfulness. And again, you can find, I mean, so in the biological world, you can find coexistence in the decision by different countries that they're going to tolerate different levels of input from genetically modified agriculture. And they're going to live side by side. So you have this all over Europe, for instance. Um, in terms of cosmopolitanism, you know, so you can go and have a child using a surrogate mother in some other country, and then, even if it's forbidden in yours, and then there can be a question about whether that surrogate child is allowed entry into your country or not. And arguably, there's some case law that points to an ethic of respect evolving around those kinds of decisions and choices. And last but not least, a constitutionalist idea that says it is important to some, bump some norms up to a kind of general level. Maybe it's no reproductive cloning. Maybe it's no research on embryos when they're less than 14 days old. You know, whatever those rules are. And they shall apply everywhere, not just in one country or another country. And therefore, you can have respect and and acknowledgement and live and let live and coexistence below this, but the uppermost norms will be uh, accepted across uh, a wider swath of territory, possibly even planetary. And you can think of that as being a kind of ethics of integration. You know, where do you give up on the differences and agree that we're all the same. So when the human genome was first mapped and sequenced, one of the things that both the politicians and the scientists went around saying was, look, it has completely blown away the category of race because when you look at the hum human genome, we are 99.9% .9 the same. I mean, you know, that trope became very common. That is a kind of statement of an ethic of integration. It's a decision in that moment what difference will matter and what differences will not matter. So again, these are things in play around the world. So I'll conclude by saying that people are already mobilizing in different sorts of ways to give effect to these principles. I mean, so I'm not sort of making them up. People are enacting them. This is a thing that a Cambridge-based, my Cambridge-based NGO created a genetic bill of rights, which had 10 rights, uh, of which this was number eight. They had nice images for each one. All people uh, have the right to be free from genetic discrimination. So, you know, a, a non-discrimination clause that was bumped up to universalisms, and, you know, then they made up um, a set of rights of which the 10th one was all people have the right to have been conceived, gestated, and born without genetic manipulation. So note that that 
uh, is something that already wants to universalize a norm against human germline genetic engineering via CRISPR. Um, and this predates CRISPR technology and the current debates on gene editing. Um, before they, I mean, so this is an American NGO trying to universalize a norm which the National Academies of Science in our own country are fighting. Uh, so this is by no means resolved in American politics. But on the other side of the Atlantic, the Oviedo Convention, which is marking its 20th year this year, has a provision, Article 13, which says that interventions on the human genome are not allowed. And so all the signatory countries to the Oviedo Convention already have agreed to the proposition that the, the Council on Responsible Genetics is trying to get heard and articulated in the US. So this is a sort of ongoing uh, process that is not settled. There is no outcome as yet. But I think it illustrates a kind of constitutional convention in progress that, in effect, through different institutional channels and so forth, the world is articulating a sort of commitment to the idea that some of these frontiers of science and technology are worth thinking about in constitutionalist terms. And even when, you know, my critical legal studies friends are totally opposed to any ideas of constitutionalism, I mean, my response is, okay, be opposed. But, you know, the fact is that people care about these things and they care enough to say that there are some areas where we want more far-reaching norms than some other areas. So I think that ultimately this whole thing about ethical futures uh, is in part a set of debates about where the locus for normative coherence and convergence should be debated, to what extent do we want harmonizing, to what extent do we want to leave things apart, but consider that that is the lifeblood of federal democracies, as we see both in Canada and in the US. It's never a settled question. There is no perfect union. There are simply aspirationally perfectible unions, and I think that our ethical responsibilities ultimately have to rest in a willingness to participate in that anticipatory orientation without a sense that we're foreclosing forever, even if we're committed to the idea that right now, under the circumstances, there is this outcome that we want and we're prepared to fight for it. Thank you.